Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 75, Redemption or Revenge. Last time, Germany had struggled as touching the Olympic Games since 1913, being shunned by war and then by those other societies who blamed them for starting that war. Germany had not only lost its right to host the Games, but was banned from two Olympiads in a row. However, in 1932, there finally came a reprieve for the entire nation in general, and more specifically, a chance for the amateur athletes to show what they were capable of. The 1936 Games would be seated in Berlin. And yet, the Olympic cause did not start off with a bang throughout the fatherland. Times were hard. Money was scarce. Everything was expensive. Assets had to go where they could do the most good or have the greatest impact, hence purchasing food for the dinner table. But then, and we will never know if it was nothing more than one of Hitler's mind games, he certainly used them to pit his subordinates against each other, the Chancellor allowed himself to be involved. At first, his response to a request for assistance was a straightforward, perfunctory, of course I'll help. But once he was taken to the chosen site, just outside of Berlin, his imagination kicked off, or kicked in, and within a moment, the failed architect had the picture of what he wanted firmly in his head. And now that Luwald and the German Olympic Committee had the backing of the state, the question of money evaporated. The need for laborers was answered with an overabundance of young, out-of-work men. And though the games were still three years away, Hitler wanted the construction to start at once. Just five days after Hitler's vision at the Grunwald outside of Berlin, the Chancellor further developed his thoughts for the entire complex that would hold the games. In his office with him was Goebbels, who the following year would become Minister of Propaganda, some of the Olympic Organizing Committee members, and other officials. As Hitler harangued them about the Olympics, it must have been a nice change of pace, as he took a break from trash-talking the Jews, Stalin, the French, the British, and the black hole that was Italy and Mussolini's intentions, he eventually made clear what he wanted. Painting a picture with his words, Hitler told his captive audience that the games to be held by Germany must show the world Germany's cultural achievements and abilities. Hence, it would have the best of everything. Which is why, in the next moment, the leader went from waxing poetic to canceling the games, shouting he would never step foot in the sports complex if it was to be built according to March's plans that were just put before him. The architect's plans called for the stadium to be made of concrete and glass. Beside himself with disgust, Hitler scanned the room, his eyes landing on Hans Funtner, Secretary of State at the Ministry of the Interior, and shouted for him to cancel the games, because he, as the head of the state, would never open up the games if it meant walking into that jumbled pile of glass and concrete. Then, calming down, Hitler explained that the new German stadium had to be made of natural stone and glass. Any architect could see that. 
Besides, there was a political aspect to their endeavor. Explained this way by the Chancellor, when a nation has four million unemployed, it must seek ways and means of creating work for them. That night, and it must be noted that this account comes from Albert Speer himself, he, Speer, stayed up most of the night reworking March's designs. Yet the structure itself was impressive. It was the materials Hitler had objected to. So Speer wrote up a proposal that hid the steel skeletons inside natural stone, which would be made more imposing by the addition of more oversized cornices or ornamental designs. As for the glass partitions, those were erased. Showing the designs to Hitler the next day, the man, who liked Speer personally, as well as his talent, accepted the changes. Who honestly knew what March thought of all this, but he had the sense to remain quiet. Yet it all worked out well for him. The complex was later considered a masterpiece, with him receiving all the credit. With that little piece of drama over, it was time to move on to the next piece of drama. Honestly, this was how Hitler worked, keeping everyone off guard, and by the time he was done with them, they, the victims, were happy for any settlement. It certainly worked with the other nation's leaders for a while. When March told the Chancellor that the stadium and assembly area would hold some 130,000 people, Hitler cut him off. Nicht acceptable unacceptable. Pointing to the area west of the stadium, the Chancellor asked how many people could go there. March guessed about a half a million. Hitler grunted his assent. March, who was quickly learning how to play the Hitler game, said that, in fact, he was thinking of leaving a space in between the stadium and assembly area. Why not there? That way, those in the stadium could look out through the open end of the stadium and see not only the assembly area, but the beautiful open virgin land behind it. Getting into the swing of things, then Luwald spoke up and told Hitler that the committee's next idea was for there to be an enormous Olympic bell that would ring for the opening and closing of the games. And, as it would be housed in a tower that would be visible from some parts of the capital, thus a source of pride for the Berliners. This also got the official nod. Honestly, probably from the sheer size of it alone. Now that the German nation was on the move, its cause singular, the army gave over their barracks at Doberitz, nine miles west of the stadium, as a start to what would become the Olympic Village. As for the Olympic site itself, it was just eight miles west of the center of Berlin in the Brandenburg landscape. Even Mother Nature pitched in, as the winds in the area were generally westerly, so the smoke from any factories was carried to the east. Altogether, the site was some 350 acres. As the state took responsibility of preparing for the Games, it demanded the best of everything. There would be a new stadium, a new assembly area, a new open theater. There would be a swimming stadium that would sit 20,000. As for the lady athletes, they would be in a new structure 
that could hold 400 people. And all this did not take into consideration houses for cooking and other essentials. There would be the Deutschlandhalle, a new hall of German sport. As for the sailing contests, they would be held at Kiel on the Baltic, but the rowing would be east of Berlin. Yet the stands there would be replaced, as would the boathouses. Everything had to be the best, on a scale never seen before. As a politician, Hitler couldn't wait to get as many men as he could to start tearing down the old stadium. At one point, some 2,600 men were on that particular job, working in shifts around the clock. But gradually, workers became scarce as men were put on to other public works around the country, which required that machines be brought in to help at the Olympic site. This speeded up the process as the end of 1934 came and the new stadium hadn't even begun to rise yet. As material for the new stadium, limestone, basalt, granite, marble, travertine, dolomite, and porphyry, igneous rock loaded with crystals, the old stadium was broken down. The only part of it to survive were the tunnels underneath. And yet, when the new stadium arose, it would only rise into the air by some 50 feet. That's because the amphitheater itself was lower by some 40 feet than the ground outside. When it was done, it would hold 100,000 people in 71 tiers of seats. But to the west of it, the assembly area would hold another 40,000 in stone seats. But even all this was dwarfed by the open area, eventually known as Mayfield, as it would hold some 250,000 people. This is what Hitler had envisioned that day, when his arms were raised. Meanwhile, nine miles west at Doberitz was the beginning of the construction of the Olympic Village. Some 140 houses would either be built or improved, each with 10 or so rooms. These were for the male athletes. The ladies would be elsewhere, as decorum dictated. As everything else, no expense was spared to make the temporary residence beautiful and comfortable. If anything, to keep to the standard of the lush forests to the northwest, already known as the Enchanted Forest. But again, in the desire to outdo all the games that had come before, a sauna was placed at one corner of the area. As they were hardly known outside of Scandinavia, a buzz was created, and many athletes took advantage of them when they came. And hard upon the cabin that housed the sauna were all the wild animals of the forest, except the mosquitoes. With typical Nazi thoroughness, the little creatures' breeding spots were sprayed, then resprayed for miles around. Next came the need for an Olympic hymn. So the committee had not one, but two contests for a submission of texts to inspire Germany's best-known composer, Richard Strauss. Eventually, the winner, Robert Lubham's poem, was chosen, and he won the 1,000-mark prize. As Germany was making progress in readying themselves for the games, Hitler came to realize 
mostly in his own mind, of the direct connection between ancient Greece and the Third Reich. In fact, he stated publicly, the Germans were the direct descendants of the ancient Greeks, who were blonde-haired and blue-eyed. If they had only not mixed with other races over the years, then all the Germans of today would look like that. In the moment of realizing this connection, Hitler and Diem put their heads together to somehow physically demonstrate the connection between the ancient world of their forebears and today's great Aryan race. An idea came to them. How about a torch run from the original fire at Olympia to the new stadium? Yet that was a long way. How would the sacred flame be protected from going out? What was needed was some type of indestructible material, say, stainless steel, that could hold the flame. But what's more, they had to make sure the flame never went out, while the various runners made their way to Berlin. This required engineers of the top class. There just so happened to be a group of them, though they were busy at the time, designing and building the weapons of Hitler's secret rearmament program in Essen. When the head Krupp was offered this most honored assignment, his response was simply, Jawohl. After months of experimenting, the engineers of Krupp came up with a torch that would be constructed of its finest stainless steel and house flaming magnesium, which would not be dampened by rain or wind, and as the torch itself would have a fuse on either side, the flame would never go out. In time, Krupp's proudly delivered 3,100 torches to Berlin, one for every kilometer of the journey. To be sure, there were palpable connections between the ancient Greeks and Germany. It's just that they weren't honorable, unless the definition of the word theft has changed. Back in 1829, the first modern excavations were made in Olympia, and by 1875, the Germans were there, in force, led by the German archaeologist Ernest Curtius. In time, Curtius would bring back many artifacts from Greece and Asia Minor. Another archaeologist, though amateur, found a sizable amount of gold at Mycenae, which the Greek government insisted be turned over to them. It was, but Schliemann, the sly amateur, did bring back another discovered gold strike near the Dardanelles, known as the Gold of Troy. In time, many pieces would be brought back to Berlin, including the altar of Pergamon. Its image was used for this episode's cover, which had to be cut into sections from its mountaintop location in Turkey. Despite all this helping oneself to someone else's cultural heritage, and the British were even more guilty of this than Germany, Hitler was tempted to contact the Greek government and ask if German teams could have permission to scour around. This request was wisely never sent, but in some ways it didn't matter. As the games of 1940 had already been awarded to Tokyo, Hitler, with his plans of future conquests, had determined already that all future games after that would be held by Nazi Germany. 
as most of Europe would be by then in his hands. Fully into it now, the Germans brought their customary exactitude and focus. An exhibition, Sport in Hellenic Times, was opened in Berlin, with pictures recently taken from Greece. A cast of the Athenian bronze Zeus the spear-thrower was set up in the new hall. Contemptuous of the British, who, in 1908, after deciding to start the marathon under the window of the royal nursery at Windsor for Princess Mary, and thus had to add a mile onto its course, Berlin's course was exactly 42,195 meters, using a topographical map. Or during the marathon of 1904 in St. Louis, when American Fred Lors rode in a car for most of the marathon, only to get out just outside the stadium and run in, his arms raised in triumph. The Germans would have monitors along the entire course. Though you can hardly blame the American, it was 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Back to Berlin, the railway system was improved and expanded from the city to the Reich Sport Field, as it would be called in the West. As for the Germans who lived along its eight-mile path, if the residents so chose to make external improvements, the government would pay for 20% of the costs. With all this outlay of precious resources of the Nazi state, criminals were most certainly not welcomed when the games were underway and people from all over the world would be in attendance. The Prussian police office gathered so much material on so many known criminals, organized it, and passed it throughout Europe that many would-be thieves were stopped at the border to remain someone else's problem. As for the decoration of Berlin itself, again, no expense was spared. The city would be covered, and this had all been measured out exactly, by 20 miles of garlands. A thousand flagpoles would hold 40,000 square yards of flags and bunting. 700 male students and 200 female students were trained as guides to help any lost souls. An 80-member team inspected but only approved some 250,000 bedrooms within the city for visitors to rent. The amount of meat, vegetables, milk, and eggs each athlete would need had been worked out exactly and were planned to be delivered at the right time. A special camera had been developed by Zeiss Icon and Agfa companies to start at the shot of the pistol and was accurate to within one thousandth of a second. Even the Olympic flame had been organized and ordered to be no bigger than 10 to 20 feet high and 6 feet wide. And it was proper for the Germans to work thus. Long before the games, each 100,000 tickets for the opening ceremony had been sold out and could have been resold 25 times over. As 1934 flew by with all this activity, but much of Nazi Germany's more extreme activities becoming known, international pressure started to mount to take the games from Berlin. Yet the IOC, and everyone must judge this for themselves, claimed that they, in good faith, had awarded the games to a city that was at the time a democracy. The change of government was not their fault.
But another cold factor was that, as the Western world was still within the grips of an economic depression, few countries could prepare for the games adequately with the time left. Yet it was clear to any of those who bothered to look that Jews had been, within months of Hitler coming to power, eliminated from most, if not all, forms of competition. First, the German Boxing Federation banned all Jewish boxers and referees in April of 1933. In May of that year, Jews were no longer allowed in any gymnastic clubs. On June 2, 1933, the Minister of Education decreed that Jews were no longer allowed to be a part of any youth or welfare organizations. Also on that same day, President Luwald was informed that he was to be removed from his position on the Olympic Organizing Committee. So, when the International Olympic Committee met in Vienna on June 7, 1933, their first concern was this rush of changing Nazi policy against Jewish athletes. What was needed, said the three American members, was for the committee to threaten to pull the games outright from Germany. With their backs so braced, the committee sent the threat to Berlin. Personally, the Americans didn't see how it would be possible for Germany to concede, as their stance against Jews was clearly a state policy. But, sure enough, the response was that Luwald would not be removed and Jewish citizens would be allowed to compete. But, as we have seen, Luwald was, by now, nothing more than a figurehead. Diem was really in charge. As for any Jewish athletes trying out for the Olympics, the Nazi state had an idea about that, too. The Olympic Committee members went their various ways home but within no time started receiving reports of further unfair treatment of German-Jewish athletes. They were still banned, and one club president killed himself when he was removed from his position, although being in charge of his club for years. Jews were also banned from public pools in August of 1933, nor could they any longer be lifeguards. The American public, certainly those that followed amateur sport, were outraged by the treatment of German Jews. There were public demonstrations and many letters to Congress. Vast parts of the American public wanted their athletes to stay home if the German Jews were going to be treated in such a way. By the summer of 1934, the momentum for American athletes to stay home was such that American Olympic Committee President Avery Brundage was pressured into taking a fact-finding tour of Germany. But even before he set out, Brundage knew what he would find, and yet he didn't want to see the obvious. Avery Brundage himself had competed in the 1912 Games in Stockholm. He did moderately well, came home an avid supporter, started his own construction company, and became rich. Using his wealth, he dabbled in supporting amateur athletes, but then became obsessed with it, to the point of becoming president of the American Olympic Committee. So, as he was flying over to Germany, he already had a strong desire to see the U.S. take part in the upcoming Games. Just before he left his country, Germany announced that 21 German Jews were chosen for 
Olympic training. But when Brundage got to Berlin, it was obvious that this was nothing but a ploy. Nothing had changed. Signs banning entrances to Jews still hung in doorways. Brundage even met a few of the Jewish athletes in training, but they were always with their Nazi handlers. The Americans stayed in Berlin for less than a week, came home, and supported the idea of Americans participating in the Games. Yet he stressed that this did not mean that the U.S. supported Nazi Germany's position of their treatment of Jews. Perhaps, privately, Brundage was thinking it would be good for his athletes to defeat and upstage their German competitors in their own stadium. For, truth be told, the Germans were thinking along those same lines. Bruno Mollitz, the sport leader of the Berlin Stormtroops, again, sports were taken very seriously in Germany, published a book in 1934, The Spirit of Sport in the National Socialist Ideology. It not only defended Germany's banning of Jews from sports club and why, but stated that the Olympics must be held in Germany at any costs and that all nations must send their best because Germany was going to take them all on and defeat them. This crushing of the world's finest athletes was to be Germany's revenge against the hated Versailles Treaty. Greetings from Central Virginia members. Uh, again, very sorry this has come out late. Um, things just got away from me. Um, so, so we're good. We're caught up now for... February. And um, don't forget, if you want to enter the Harry's Contest giveaway, I'll do that in a couple of weeks. Just send me an email to wwiipodcast at gmail.com and put something like gold handle in the subject area so I'll know. And I can loop those all together and get my daughters to draw names and um, find out who's going to win. So good luck to everybody. And again, very sorry for this one coming out late. And it shan't happen again. Take care, everyone.